1776, the representatives of the 13 British colonies of North America met in Congress at the Pennsylvania State House and agreed to adopt a Declaration of Independence from the British Crown. Uh, the Declaration had a preamble uh, which famously commenced like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, uh, we're Australians and most of us can remember what comes next. Life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or establish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation upon such principles, and organising its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, and so on. <coughs> And so on. At one level, the preamble is just a sort of a, a warm-up act before the Constitution. Uh, at that level, it's just a sort of introduction before you get to the meat of the document, the actual Declaration of Independence. It doesn't create any laws. It doesn't establish any freedoms. It's just the preliminary bit before the real thing. And yet... It's the part of the Declaration that everybody remembers. It's the bit that Americans, over the last 200 and something years now, have appealed to again and again and again throughout their history to tell them who they are and to remind them of what they stand for. It's that important. When we adopted our Constitution, Australia, as a United Commonwealth in 1900, or rather when it was given to us by the British Commonwealth, the British Parliament, it came with no such preamble. Uh, I guess that wasn't surprising under the circumstances. Uh, John Howard, you might recall if you're old enough, uh, had a sort of attempt at remedying that uh, a century later in 1999 with a little statement that he'd written. I think he got Les Murray to help him out. Uh, a little statement about how we value excellence and independence and Mateship, I remember mateship being in there, and so on. Uh, but that never really, I think it didn't get a majority of voters in any of the states, never really took off at all. Uh, so 20 years on, we're still discussing whether we should have one and what it should say. Well, the passage we're looking at in Exodus this morning, the first of our three uh, talks across the weekend, is essentially the preamble to the constitution of the nation of Israel. The Israelites, if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, the Israelites have come out of slavery in Egypt after four centuries in that condition. They've passed through the Red Sea, they've travelled through the wilderness, and now three months after the original events of the Exodus, they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and God constitutes them as a nation. The remainder of the book of Exodus, more than half of the book, is about the events that take place there at the foot of the mountain. And the next few chapters in particular, chapters 19 to 24, this crucial middle portion of the book of Exodus, the next few chapters are about God establishing the covenant between himself and the nation of Israel. He's writing the constitution of the nation, as it were. 
And the words that God gives to Moses to say to the people on his behalf, these words in chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, these words are the preamble to that covenant. And like the preamble to the American Declaration of Independence, these words are of critical, foundational importance for everything that follows. They make three basic points, each of which is fundamental to the identity of Israel as the people of God, and each of which translates into something that is fundamentally important for us in understanding what it means for us to belong. Uh, belong not to ourselves, but to our faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ, and in belonging to Him, to belong to His people. They begin, verse 4, with a reminder of salvation, the salvation that the people of God had just three months ago experienced. With a reminder of salvation, and implicitly with a reminder of, therefore, the consequent identity of Israel as the saved, the redeemed people. Chapter 19, verse 4, and I'm quoting at this point in this talk from the English Standard Version, the ESV, for reasons I'll explain in just a few minutes. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The nation of Israel begins, do you see, the nation of Israel begins in a very different way from the nation of the United States of America. There is no meeting of the slaves in Egypt passing a resolution to declare themselves independent of the Pharaoh. There is no war of liberation. They don't save themselves out of slavery in Egypt. God saves them. He comes to them when they are helpless slaves who could do nothing but groan. And their groan comes up to him. And he hears it and he remembers his covenant with their ancestors. And he raises up a saviour for them, Moses. And to start with, they don't even want to listen to the saviour that God has sent to them. God does all the fighting. God defeats Pharaoh. God is the one who sets them free. And God is the one who makes them into a people. And he wants them to remember this. So right at the very start, in the opening line of the preamble to his covenant with them, he reminds them and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. To be part of the people of God is to belong to a redeemed community. It is to be born in subsequent generations into a nation of liberated slaves brought into being by the compassion and the mercy of God. To be born into a nation that was birthed in grace and never ceases to be the nation of the redeemed. And the implications of that were meant to seep into every aspect of the life of the people of Israel. This was the core strand of their national DNA. So the Ten Commandments, 
in the very next chapter. The ten words that God gives to Moses to speak in Exodus chapter 20, to inscribe on tablets of stone that they might never be forgotten. The Ten Commandments begin with another reminder of the way God saved them and brought them out of slavery. Exodus 20 verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You get to the fine print of the detail of the covenant in chapter 22 and 23, and the reminders keep on coming. Chapter 22 verse 21, do not mistreat an alien, uh, an asylum seeker, a refugee, a foreigner living amongst you. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage, verse 22, of a widow or orphan. If you do, they... And they cry out to me. I will certainly hear their cry. Subtext, as I heard your cries and your groaning when you cried out and groaned under the yoke of Pharaoh. Verse 24, my anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your Subtext, as I did to Pharaoh and his soldiers. Your wife will become widows and your children fatherless. Verse 25 of chapter 22, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset. Because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else would he sleep in? When he cries out to me, subtext says, you cried out to me once when you were slaves. You know what it is to groan and to cry out. When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And so on. And so on. The nation of Israel is to be a nation like no other because it had its birth in the compassion and the grace of God. Notice too the way the first sentence ends. Exodus 19 verse 4, You've seen yourselves what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God doesn't say, he doesn't just say, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you out of Egypt. And let go of you and said, fly, little bird, fly. Find yourself a home. Go and nest among the trees. Flee to the mountains. That's not what it says. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The Exodus, you see, was not just a journey out of slavery. It was a journey into Sanji. It was a journey into the presence and the worship and the service of God, the God who had redeemed them, and in redeeming them had made them his own. So the basic document of the nation of Israel was not a declaration of independence. It was a covenant at a national level, at a communal level, kind of like a marriage covenant is at a familial level. They were brought out of slavery into relationship with the God who saved them. And the verse that follows immediately after that, Exodus 19 verse 5, begins to spell out the nature of that relationship. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The NIV, the New International Version, which most of us are familiar with and have in front of us, um, translates verse 5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, which makes it sound as if God is only going to continue uh, to keep the nation of Israel as his people if they managed all of them to keep all of his laws all of the time. Perfectly. But the word, that word fully isn't there in the original. Now, the original is much more like the ESV translation that's there on the outline. Um, the little Hebrew idiom uh, reinforces the keeping idea, um, but it's not about 100%. The point here isn't about perfection. Uh, the, there is plenty of stuff in the law of Moses uh, about how to deal with the fact that God, the God of Israel, is a holy God. His people are people who sin. Uh, it's an issue. It's a big issue. How God provides for the making of atonement for the sins of a people who live in fellowship with a holy God. That is a big, big deal in the law of Moses. But it's not quite the issue here. The issue here is about the basic heart response of God's people to his voice. Will their basic response be one of obeying his voice and keeping his covenant? Or will it be one of hardening their hearts and forgetting the God who saved them and turning away from him and turning aside from his covenant with them? We know from the rest of the Old Testament, if we're familiar with the story, that the nation as a whole ends up as God fully anticipates. If you've ever read the book of Deuteronomy, he sees it coming. The, the nation as a whole ends up following not the first, but the second of those two courses. As a nation, they stumble and fall because they disobey the voice of God. In the end, salvation comes to the world not through their obedience, but through their disobedience. But to those who hear the voice of God and to respond to him in faith and obedience, to those who keep his covenant, God says, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. My treasured possession. Or as the old King James Version put it, ye shall be a peculiar treasure to me above all people. Peculiar, not primarily in its modern sense, meaning weird or comical or bizarre, although the nation of Israel, viewed through the eyes of its neighbours, was in many ways, if they kept covenant, a weird, bizarre, unusual nation. But peculiar here in its primary and original and older sense, meaning particular or special. The, the word that's used in the original language that stands behind that phrase, my treasured possession, my peculiar treasure, the word that's used in the original is a term that's drawn from economic and political contexts. It's the word that was used, 1 Chronicles 29, Ecclesiastes 2 and so on. It's a word that was originally used to talk about the personal possessions and land holdings of the monarch. You know, uh, the, in the... In the, in the UK even today, uh, the Queen 
rules over the whole of the United Kingdom, but there are particular estates, particular buildings, particular patches of land that are the personal lands that belong personally to the crown, to the monarch, and to her family. There's the whole duchy of Cornwall, um, whole slices of whole, whole bits of real estate uh, in the county of Cornwall and elsewhere that belongs personally to her son, Prince Charles, the Duke of Cornwall, and so on. The king, the, na- the, the, the monarch, rules over the whole nation. It's all under their authority. But the lands and wealth that make up the segula are his personal treasure, his peculiar possession. And in the same way, God tells Moses to say to the people of Israel, in the same way, he, the God who rules over all the world, has chosen them, Israel, to be set apart, to belong to him, to belong to him in a particular and peculiar way, to be his personal patch of real estate, his own treasured possession, where he makes his home. His treasured possession above all peoples. Which raises an obvious question, thirdly, about the rest of the nations of the world. If Israel has this kind of special, unique, particular, peculiar relationship with God the Creator, if they are his treasured possession, his peculiar treasure, then where do all the other nations of the world stand? What about the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians? Does Israel's God have any sort of relationship with all the other nations of the world? And what should Israel's relationship be with them? Which is what the final line, the last part of verse 5 and the beginning of Verse 6 goes on to answer. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Once again, I think the NIV translation, which is generally a very excellent, excellent translation, um, is unfortunate and a little bit unhelpful at this point. (coughs) They get all the big words right, uh, but with a couple of the little words that are the kind of the hinges between the clauses, I think they get it wrong on this verse. Uh, They make the for at the beginning of the line into an although you think about it, there's a lot of difference between a for and although. And they alter the logic, I think, of the clause relationship significantly by doing so. Verse 5, they make the sentence, the NIV, read something like this. Verse 5, now if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Full stop, NIV. Although the whole earth is mine, You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The effect, it seems to me, of that way of translating it is 
to change the meaning of the original quite significantly. According to the NIV version, the relationship of Israel to the nations is nothing but privilege. Although the whole earth is mine, you get to be the special ones. But the point is not just about privilege. It's about responsibility as well. It's about mission. It's about purpose. You see, God doesn't just choose Israel despite the fact that the whole earth is his. Although, in the NIV translation. Now, he chooses Israel because the whole earth is his. Because this earth belongs to him. His throne is in heaven. But he's going to make himself a home on earth because this earth is his and he rules over it. And he's going to rule it not just from afar, but also from up close. It's for the sake of the nations. Ultimately, in the long run, it's for the sake of people like you and me. It's for the sake of the nations that God chooses out Israel to make them his people. Which is why he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. With their privilege comes a kind of job description, a task, a calling, a mission, a vocation. And it's a priestly vocation. The so-called Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers um, is not a Protestant 16th century invention. It's a covenant of Moses millennium and a half before Jesus Old Testament invention. It's about the collective priesthood of the whole people of God, the priestly vocation of the whole nation of Israel. You see, just as the priests served Israel, just as the priests and Levites were set apart as a special tribe to serve the whole nation of Israel by being separated and holy within the nation. In the same way, Israel is to serve the nations by being separated and holy within the worlds. As the priests were to be to Israel, so Israel was to be to the worlds. Separated, different, holy. Peculiar in that second sense of the word. Not just particularly and specially belonging to Israel's God, but strangely, visibly, contrastively different. Like light and darkness. Like a city on a hill set apart amongst the nations, in the midst of the nations, as the people that were the special treasured possession of the God who made the world. A visible demonstration of the character and glory of God, a nation in the midst of the nations, born out of the compassion and the grace of God, with mercy written into their DNA, and therefore radically, tangibly, 
visibly different from all the rest of the world. I like the nations are sitting on a hill because the whole earth is mine. Do you see? Now you know, and I know, that Israel in the Old Testament never really ends up consistently living out this destiny. There are some high aspirations, some powerful uh, prophetic reminders, some reforming kings, some righteous Israelites. There are good moments, thanks to the grace of God. But the overall story across the pages of the Old Testament is not the story of a nation that ends up fulfilling its charter, rising up to live out its creed. So Isaiah, the prophet, looks back over the history of Israel in Isaiah chapter 59, uh, verse 20, chapter 26, I should say, um, and he says, We were with child, we writhed in pain. That is to say, we were the nation pregnant with justice and peace and salvation for the earth. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. And this is no surprise to God. Because his ultimate plan had always, in the end, been for just one man to end up carrying Israel's destiny and fulfilling Israel's purpose. His ultimate plan had always been for one man to end up taking the torch to be the light to the nations, the display of God's character, the visible demonstration of the glory of God. In the end, God's covenant with Israel, the Exodus 19 Sinai covenant with Israel, is fulfilled by one man, Jesus. He is the true people of God. He is the true Israel. He is the treasured possession. He is the holy nation. At this side of the cross and resurrection, God creates around Jesus a new and renewed Israel. That's why Jesus calls 12 disciples. Why not 11? Why not 13? Because 12 is the Israel number. And he says that the renewal of the world, you 12 will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You, the new Israel, gathered around me, the true Israel, at the renewal of the earth, fulfilling the original Israel's mission as light to the nations, as the one through whom salvation will come. He gathers around Jesus, God gathers around Jesus, a new Israel made up of people from all the nations of the world. A new Israel saved by Jesus and incorporated into Jesus, in Christ, a people in Him to become a people belonging to one another and belonging to Jesus, who learn to live out the destiny and the purpose of God's original nation, Israel. When we're converted, we're converted into belonging. And we belong to that people, to that story. 
and to that purpose. That's you and that's me if our trust is in Jesus. We are the peculiar treasure. We are the special possession. We are the priestly kingdom. We are those things, all of those things, not because of something special or superior in ourselves. The same was true of Israel, of course. When Moses preaches to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab, at the end of their 40 years of wilderness wandering, on the brink of their crossing of the Jordan and their entry into the land, he says to them, don't think it was because of something special about you that God saved you out of Egypt. Don't think that God chose you because you were the greatest of the nations. He didn't choose you for your power or your goodness, your giftedness, your superiority. No, he simply set his heart and his affections on you because of his kindness. He chose you in his grace. You were born out of his mercy. Do not say in your heart, it's because of our greatness that he chose us. No, say to your children and your children's children, it is because the Lord set his affection on us. He loved us because he loved us because he loved us. Mysteriously, undeservedly, magnificently. He chose us in his sheer grace. And he chose us for purposes of grace, that his splendor, the splendor of his kindness and his mercy might be exhibited in visible form in a people who were born out of that mercy. Same for you and me. Do not say in your heart, something special about me. May God choose me. No, God chose me. do something special that he had purposed and planned to do in his kindness. It's not because of us, anything special, anything superior about us that makes us the peculiar treasure and special possession of God. It's because of Jesus. We become who we are as we come to him as we come to him. So as we finish this first talk this morning, I want to steal a little thunder from the second talk after morning tea. I want to read you the words from 1 Peter that are printed, uh, or mentioned at least, um, on the outline at the bottom of the page. Listen to what Peter writes. And remember that he's speaking about, about you and about me, about us together. And about our relationship with God and about our, our relationship. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you, as you come to him, as you come to him, the God who brought Israel out of slavery on eagles' wings and brought them to himself, has spoken to us and has brought us to Jesus and made us his. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious 
to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. We are not just God's stone collection. Stone here, a stone here, a stone here, scattered and disparate. Now to belong to Jesus is to belong together to Jesus. Stones being built into a house, a temple, a dwelling place, a people. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're going to explore that passage in the verses that follow in our second talk after morning tea.